see you. If you've been around here for a little while, um, especially the beginning of this year, you know that we have been doing a series on Genesis. We've been digging into this jump, some of the gems we found there. As we continue that study, I'm tasked with bridging the gap from creation, the first fall when that mango was eaten, to the second fall of Cain's mysterious act, evil act, and now through to the third fall from the image of God that required his intervention. We're going to begin today with Genesis 5. I'd like you to turn there, if you will, because I'm not going to be able to put up all the verses that we will look at. But while you're turning there, I'd like to do a quick review of what we have determined is so. As you're getting there, you'll note that Genesis 5 is a genealogy. Genealogy notes are carefully positioned to emphasize the importance of beginnings to the story of our own history. And as you know, Genesis even starts with, in the beginning. In the beginning, there was God. He started the earth. Creation of the earth and mankind's first home in the garden is the subject of the first couple chapters. Then we come to that fateful choice to rebel that resulted in a major disorder. But God, probably my favorite words ever said, but God reveals a provision of hope. In the midst of all of this evil, separation, and pain, there is hope grounded on divine promises. Probably all of Genesis, and I would expect all of Scripture, is focused and based on Genesis 3.15. God putting enmity between the serpent and man and the crushing of that serpent. You see, man, without God's intervention, loves evil. Our natural, in, um, our natural inclinations are toward the bad stuff. But by putting enmity in us toward evil, God prepares a way for us to recognize the Creator and long for the Savior. That promise of a Savior is revealed at key moments throughout Genesis especially, but throughout all of Scripture, reassuring that there's a hope, and that has moved millions, transformed them since that time. So putting enmity between man and the serpent was God's first act of restoration. Enmity toward evil is a God thing. It's a gift. After the first fall, mankind was expelled from God's immediate presence. Then death appeared in the form of a murder. That shows the progression of the rebellion initiated when that first fruit was eaten. Death entered human society, making explicit what had only been implicit in God's description of a world governed by sin. It's real now. Death is a thing. It's interesting that the author of Genesis, in giving the history of Cain after that act, 
and his descendants as a narrative about significant human accomplishments. Um, the Bible's record of Cain's family history ends with Lamech, as we studied not long ago. He was the ultimate example of human self-reliance, pride, vindictiveness, and self-sufficiency. <clears throat> it is not without significance that the seventh generation in each of the lines that we the one we studied last week and the one we'll look at in a minute, reaches its highest expression of its tendencies since seven is the biblical number for completion. The seventh from Adam in the line of Cain was the godless Lamech. He was proud to admit that he had murdered a man, fearing neither God nor his judgments. However, just before we get to the focus of our study today in Genesis 5, hope is given in the birth of another son, Seth. The appointed one who would follow Abel. Adam and Eve are definitely hoping that this one would be the one that would come to crush that old serpent. In opposition to the history of Cain's descendants, Seth is noted for um, worship. Oh, I hit the wrong button. Hope I did it. Oh, I didn't mess it up. Um, then men began to call on the name of the Lord. You see, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the fact that men had made some accomplishments and had done some great things. The problem lied in the fact that Cain's descendants did not acknowledge God as the giver of their gifts. Now as we look at the bridge found in Genesis 5, you'll notice, and my Bible headlines this section as the family of Adam. Thank you for praying for us as a family, by the way. That ties in really good with our focus. Genealogies play a significant role in the structure of Genesis. They are meant to track family lines through ancestry. Even in today's world, if you listen to Ancestry.com, there is importance in knowing where you came from. However, to the Western mind, biblical genealogies are boring. As a matter of fact, how many of you tend to skip the genealogies when you're reading through the Bible? You can't even pronounce those names. I usually did too. However, when pastor assigned me Genesis 5, almost catastrophic. But I did find out quite a lot of good information. There's a reason God had inspired Moses to include Genesis 5 in this narrative. The nature and function of biblical genealogies is very different from what our Western mindset expects, which adds to our misunderstanding. One of the reasons for this is that telescoping is common. In other words, leaving out some names for the sake of brevity and to get to the point of emphasis, which means then that the words father and son take on a whole new meaning than what my brain typically thinks of. So saying things like Abraham was the father of Joseph, or maybe even Ephraim, is common in biblical genealogies. 
another confusing aspect to Western mindset is that we tend to think in, think in terms of chronology and genealogies, say that really quick, huh? Um, as the same thing. However, chronology deals with statements of time, and genealogies deal with family relations. Its focus is on determining where I came from, not how long it took me to get there. Looking at how family history made me who I am. And further than that, looking at does that making need to be redone to fit into God's plan? Over the years, scholars have analyzed ancient Near East data and have come to understand that genealogies are summary statements of ancestry and are used to move the story forward, acting as transitions um, in key scenes of Earth's history. The use of genealogies ease that transition, such as the one that we're going to look at today. It transitions from chapter 4 about Cain and that mysterious evil act to Genesis 6 where Noah and his family line in the flood are introduced. That's a span of about 1,700 years all condensed down to a little itty-bitty space. Their focus is on future. After that first pronounced good news in Genesis 3.15, the records of names um, of such individuals make it more real. These are really actual men who lived and struggled to believe that the serpent would be crushed by divine intervention. All right, let's start with Genesis 5.1. This is the book of the family history of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Most of us find someone else's family history less interesting than our own. Um, I had a mother who was obsessed with figuring out our family history. And I will say that even I found it a little more boring than I probably should have. Finding out that I have ancestry that are Indian was really exciting. Finding out that I have ancestry that was convicted of a heinous crime was not so great. Um, but here we find that these men found out that there would be intervention by divine methods. Amazingly enough, this genealogy says that you back there in the corner, Roy, your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy is the same as James. He has a great, same great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy. And you here in the front, Lilani, Sam, Nicholas, all of you have the same great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaddy as they did. Get the point? We are all related. Like it or not, <laughs> I love it. It's wonderful. I never had a sister, and now I got lots. Speaking of which, this is a great family day for the Bauer family. 
I just found out a few minutes ago that my brother is also preaching out in Texas. And my other brother would probably be preaching today in Pennsylvania, except he just recently had surgery. So it's a great day for our family. Okay, that's information you didn't need, but. <laughs> this genealogy also is the only place in Genesis where family records are associated with the word book, suggesting that there was probably a written record of birth. Could it have been that the ancient world had a department of health that kept track of these births? I don't know, but whether or not that's so, it is certainly suggesting that there is an importance in the ancient world of keeping records of one's roots. But perhaps the most significant information provided to us is that man was made in the likeness of God. The family record of Cain describes their rebellion. The contrast is that the descendants of Adam through Seth would preserve that image of God, even though it had been rather damaged as the result of sin. Genesis 5, or Genesis 5-2, after saying that God created mankind in his own image, tells us that he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. You see, God didn't create one individual to represent all of him. He created two beings so that his image could be fully represented. It takes male and female with all their characteristics, idiosyncrasies, and craziness to fully represent the image of our great big God. There's no there's no other example on earth that would give us such an insight to our one God, composed of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, than is the male and female union. Perhaps that's why Satan seeks to damage that relationship so much in providing alternate relationships. It was what was designed to give us a clearer image of God and Satan definitely does not like that concept. Now, I'm not going to bore you by reading all the names throughout this um, family history of Adam, most of which have no other biblical record except the ones found in this chapter. But I'd like to look at a few that stand out as a bit different from the others. So we'll start with the first couple of verses that establish a pattern. And Adam lived... 130 years, and had a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. After he had Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Um, the emphasis on the words that I've underlined there are repeated throughout um, this chapter and draws our attention to the one of the purposes of this chapter. Men lived, they had children, and they died. However, there is a significance in the fact that he lived 130 years and had a son named Seth. 
even though we know Seth is the third son, and he was probably much younger when he had Cain and Abel, um, having a son at 130 years old is a little bit mind-boggling. It's almost as if I would say, and Steve lived 130 years and had a son named Andrew. He had another son, too, and then he lived another 800 years. Anybody believe me? No, I don't think so. This is rather exceptional, and it would seem that even the author in Genesis found it to be rather exceptional because it's the only place where the genealogies actually give the names or the ages of these people. So it's exceptional that man lived so long. I can't even figure out how to comprehend somebody born in 1900, let alone somebody that was born in 1093, still being alive today. Ain't happening in this brain. Um, perhaps one of the most noteworthy things, though, in this verse is that Adam had a son in his own likeness after his image. Seth is in the image and likeness of his father, Adam's sons inherited his nature. While Adam was created sinless and in the nature and likeness of God, Seth, like Cain, inherited the fallen nature of his parents. The good news is that Seth also believed that there would be a crusher of the serpent, and it was divine grace that led him to serve and honor God. So as each generation is further removed from the original image of God, they do have some connection to Genesis 1 and God's activity there. God is passing on some of the remnants of his divine image from parent to child, even though the fall had nearly eradicated it. Then we find that the rest of these verses tend to follow a repetitive pattern, as we talked about a little bit ago. It's almost poetic. The narrative gives the name of the person, his age when the child was born, the name of the son, noting that perhaps that son's name is not always the firstborn, but it is in the line of the one who would crush that serpent. The years he lived after the arrival, he had other sons and daughters, and the total numbers of that he lived. But the point in each record, except for the seventh, which we'll talk about in a minute, end with the words, and he died. Showing the emphasis on that the lie of the serpent and the reality of the rebellion that was begun at that tree. Again, in verses 6 and 7, if you look at that, you see that Seth names his son Enosh, which means mortal man. Remember, Adam's name means man is. Enosh's me, name means man is mortal. It's recognized that man would die and is dependent on the one who would come to crush the serpent's head. There is a point that this family history is getting to, and that is man needs restoration and that serpent needs to be crushed for life to begin again. Now, 
I'm fascinated with numbers. Always have been. I'd be better as an accountant probably than what I'm doing, but don't tell anybody, but I really enjoy doing taxes. <laughs> I, don't, I said doing them. I did not say paying them. Make sure that's clear. But the number seven in the Bible has a meaning that it represents God and his perfection. It's a sign of completeness, um, obedience, and rest. As we noted in the seventh from the family uh, in Adam's um, line of Cain, Cain's family line, the seventh completed the cycle of where evil was headed. Now we see the completion in Seth's family line as an example of those that called on the name of the Lord. Verses 21 and 23 say, Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. What a great song. Jesus Christ is the living hope. The seventh from Adam in Seth's family walked with God. It seems that the seventh generation in the sons of man and the seventh generation in the sons of God represented the completeness of the choices that were made to either follow evil or follow good. The metaphor walked with God also brings us back to the memory in Eden when men walked with God daily. The image of God cannot be eradicated when we live in the walk with God mentality, seen in Enoch's life of faith. And as he walked closer to God, the connection grew deeper and more important to him than anything else. Then he walked with God right into heaven. You see, the completion of God's ultimate plan for this world is, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. And those who are dead will rise and join the living to be caught up together. Those who, like Enoch, walk with God, who decide that they need to be in the presence of God daily and love that presence those are the ones that will walk right into heaven. Perhaps you and Enoch can walk arm in arm into heaven again, maybe hand in hand. The last significant thing that I'd like to point out in chapter 5 is that the family of Adam goes on to the 10th generation. It's a number that is significant, meaning restoration. The biblical record of Cain's family ends at the seventh generation, because it had completed its decision to follow evil's path, and there could be no restoration because of that decision. However, the sons of God's genealogy end with the decision, and with Noah, and the tenth generation represents those who long for that restoration of God's image into humanity. Noah ushers in a new beginning. 
it truly is a do-over. Choices will follow, but there is that hope of the restoration given in the 10th generation referenced here. Now, the name Noah comes from the Babylonian word nuku, meaning repose or rest. And of course, the Hebrew translation is going to add an additional meaning, broadening that to be comfort and consolation. As his father predicted when he named him in verse 29, this one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord has cursed. The world was about to be comforted. It had turned its back on the rest that God intended for them and followed a course of self-indulgence. Now, through Noah, God was sending comfort and rest to his sons. And as Noah preached of a flood that would destroy the earth, it brought that hope of comfort, consolation, and rest from the violence and despair brought to the earth by that third fall from God's image for the sons of God who would exist on the other side of this makeover. Genesis 6 introduces us to that third fall and the reason that it came to our planet. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply <clears throat> on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. It seems that the sons of God and the daughters of men are prominent words used in the first part, the first few verses of chapter 6. What do they mean? Some believe that some cosmic being, angelic-like personage, are the sons of God, and that the daughters of men are human. However, in trying to interpret God's word, it's probably best to look at the context that we're looking in. And if you remember when just preceding this passage is the genealogy of Cain and his family in chapter 4, and then we just looked at chapter 5, which gives us the genealogy of Seth and his family, it seems more likely to interpret that the sons of God were the descendants of Adam through Seth's line and the descendants of man, or the daughters of men would be the descendants through Cain's line. Um, a behind-the-scenes look at this, as I read through um, Patriarchs and Prophets, seems to indicate that the sons of Seth and the sons of Cain at first lived totally separate places. But as generations passed, the two lines intermingled through marriage, and the wickedness of humankind became more pronounced. Becoming more and more interested in self-gratification and greed brought a heightened interest in polygamy and other forms of discontent. The focus of these verses, then, are that men followed their own desires, which led to crime and further indulgence of evil. Neither the marriage relationship nor the rights of property 
were respected. Whoever coveted the wives or possessions of someone else, of his neighbor, took them by force, and men exalted in their deeds of violence and self-indulgence. Later, even when the author of Genesis says that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, in verse 5, it seems to again focus on the fact that the sons and daughters are earth-bound descendants of Seth and Cain, indicating even in a more pronounced way just who the sons and daughters were. We are dealing with a global issue here, probably even cosmic, that had become so foreign to the design that God had determined that the world needed redone. If man would not cease to pollute the earth with their violence and hatred, God would necessarily have to blot them from his creation and destroy all things that he had given to bless them. To this environment, Noah is sent to keep alive the knowledge of God and to curb the advance of the moral evils prevailing at that third fall from the image of God. Another noteworthy fact in this third fall is that when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, this language is reminiscent of what happened at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. When Eve saw that mango, it was good for food. She took it and ate it. When humankind judges things based on what they see or feel as right, it rarely turns out well. Best to focus on the clear teachings of the word of God. My feelings are going to lead me astray. Remember, the heart is desperately wicked. And the only hope for me is to allow God to put the enmity of evil in me. By verse 3, we learn that things had become so evil that God had to make a judgment decision. My spirit will not abide with men forever, for he is indeed flesh. Yet his days will be 120 years. Wow. Even in all of this evilness, God recognizes that man is flesh and has no hope of being as he really in originally intended. Not without his spirit. God gives that grace by saying, in essence, I cannot abide with man forever in this state of being so earthly-minded. However, he has 120 years to come to repentance and believe me as their creator. To me, that says in plain English, I love them too much to let them go without attempting to reverse their path to destruction. Many who first believed these words spoken believed out of fear of what would come because they later on decided that it didn't happen. It's been a long time and there's no flood. Noah must be nuts. And they discontinued their walk with God and joined their former associates. To me, this seems to be a very important point in the fact that a consistent daily walk with God 
is needed to maintain the faith of Jesus. If it was possible for those men to fall three to 4,000 years ago, would our, our generation do any differently when evil has had that much longer to present itself? It requires a determined effort to stay in the walk with God status. When we get to verse 4, it's kind of a difficult passage to equate with everything else that's being said. The verses found there in, with the other verses found in chapter 6, but the NAS, New American Standard Bible, puts it this way. The, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of mankind, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, men of renown. The word that's translated in this translation as Nephilim is probably in your Bible as either giants or fallen ones. Probably the words fallen ones are the best interpretation. Um, would translate a better picture of what it's trying to say because the world had become so evil with the entrance of sin and the fallen ones stood as giants to influence and encourage the downward path of man so that even the sons of God joined with the fallen ones and became mighty men in leading the world into further evil. This verse is basically re-emphasizing the wickedness of the antediluvian world and its third fall and the corrupting influence of those who fear not God, representing even more pronounced that God needed to do something about this situation. This understanding also leads more easily into verse 5, where God is forced to take divine action. When God saw, he acted. Depending on your chosen side, he either acted as a judge or a savior. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every thought of his heart was only evil all day long. The fallen ones and the professed sons of God were joining forces to love evil all the time. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Humanity's wretchedness brought grief to the heart of God. However, despite his grief to protect the sons of God, the reign of evil had to be checked. One can feel unhappiness about a situation without considering it to be the wrong choice. Yes, God is sorry that man has come to this state. His decision to create man is in this moment causing him pain. He is not suggesting that what he did was a mistake, only that he is hurting because man is rejecting him. God hurts when I reject him. The loving God who wanted so much the companionship of mankind that he created them to be his children is now sorry and grieved 
so deeply that it affected him all the way to his core. God sees that left alone, evil will eventually take over the world. And there will be no godly people left. God had no choice but to destroy the world and let it start again. His character required honesty and trustworthiness. And that had to follow what he had already promised that there would be a crusher of the serpent. So he had to come to this decision in order to fulfill that promise. He did come to that hard decision, and the perfect world he had, to cre- he had created needed to be destroyed. In his mercy, he gave humanity a second chance through Noah and his descendants. Verse 7 puts it in this way. Then the Lord said, I will wipe out mankind whom I have created from the face of the land, mankind and animals as well, crawling things and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. God had high hopes that man would now have only Enoch's and Noah's, and there would be no more Cain's. The book of Genesis as well, of all, as well as all of Scripture, will present God's answer to this dilemma. In short, God provides judgment that was required for sin, wrapped in mercy for humanity. He has a rescue plan that was announced in the crushing of the servant's head, and in order to complete that promise, something drastic must be done to stop the progression of evil. It looks forward to that walk of God or walk with God that will happen when the final rescue is completed and the sons of God walk again into his presence. Now comes the glimmer of hope in that only evil continually world. All is not lost for mankind because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Despite All the pain and what appears as a hopeless situation for mankind, there is hope. Someone was found to have favor in God's eyes. Yes, and woohoo! God does not have to wipe out mankind. There is someone who will accept the grace and mercy that God's providing. In Hebrew, the word that we translate grace um, is further expanded, of course, um, and adds the dimension of a wall and a growing seed with something very precious. So when Noah found grace, it painted a picture of God providing a precious, continually growing wall of protection to him and his descendants. Who have we determined his descendants are? All of us. You and me. Noah had favor with God, and that's exactly what this antediluvian world needed. God's mercy. Noah was chosen to be that grace bridge to a future for humanity. Through his descendants would come the crushing of the serpent and the restoration 
of walking daily with him into a sinless place. Praise God from whom all grace flows.